This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Elijah Stacy. He is the author of A Small If, the inspiring story of a 17-year-old with a fatal disease and a mission to cure it. Elijah, it's so great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me today. So excited to meet you. Uh, the book's terrific. Um, you know, it's no small feat to write a book, but let alone an autobiographical book about such a serious topic and your life and the disease you were diagnosed with. So before we get into the book and the genesis of the book, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, Duchenne disease and when you were diagnosed and, and kind of the 101 for everyone not familiar with it? Yeah. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a muscle wasting disease that eats away a person's muscles as time goes on. So when I was six years old, that's when I was officially diagnosed. And what's really common uh, when you're young is that you fall to the floor frequently, you walk on your tippy toes, you're not able to keep it with your peers, you get fatigued real easily. And so this is what really got our attention is that, you know, I was walking on my toes and just things that were abnormal behavior for uh, a five, six year old. Uh, then as time goes on, uh, patients will lose their ability to walk. They'll become completely dependent on a wheelchair. This happened to me when I was 11 years old. Uh, now I use a power wheelchair. And then in their later teenage years, um, typically, they will lose mobility in their arms. Um, so it's harder to, you know, to do simple things like uh, put on a t-shirt or raise your hand in class, uh, things like that. And then the worst part about the disease is it is a fatal disease. Uh, most patients pass away when they're 25 years old. And the reason this is, is because it attacks the heart and diaphragm as those are muscles as well. Wow. How old are you right now? I'm 20 years old. Wow. Okay. So we'll get into your story in a second and more about the book, but how common is this disease? I understand, you know, you're not the only one in your family who has it. And I was just curious, have you, have any, have, have any of your, you know, ancestors had, is this something that, that has, you know, been found in your family in prior generations? Yeah. So the disease, there's about uh, more than a quarter of a million people that have it uh, worldwide. Uh, so it's a good, good amount of people. Um, but in terms of the rarity of it, you know, the, the statistics are about is one in 3,500 boys are uh, diagnosed with this disease. And in my family, you know, we don't really know anyone, uh, you know, grandparents or anything like that, that have a connection to the disease. So we, we're not really sure. Um, but, but that's what we know. Yeah. But you do have two of your brothers also were stricken with the disease. That's correct. Yeah. So I'm the second oldest. My older brother does not have the disease. He's completely healthy. I have the disease. And then my little brother, Max had the disease. He passed away in 2019 when he was just 14 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. My little brother, Kai, he's 14 right now. He has the disease and he's in a power wheelchair. Wow. Wow. And, but your parents don't have it. My parents do not have it now, but so my mom is a carrier of the disease. It's X linked. So the woman will actually uh, pass it down. And that's why my older brother does not have the disease uh, because when uh, during, you know, during reproduction, the offspring is determined by the man. And so 
Uh, it's either going to be an X or Y chromosome. And so since it's X linked, you know, the woman puts up two X chromosomes. So my older brother, he got one of the, the good X chromosomes where I got the bad one, Max got the bad one, Kai got the bad one, right? So it's a 50-50 chance at that point since my mom is the carrier of the disease. Got it. Yeah. You know, because you're curious how it works genetically and why some get it and why, why some others don't. Um, so tell us about the title of the book. You know, what does a small if refer to and why was that? I assume that was the impetus for writing the book and making it the title. So tell us the backstory of, of that phrase, a small if. Yeah. So small if it comes from my doctor. Um, what happened is, is I was having uh, an x-ray down on my back and my spine was becoming more and more curved and to the point to where during this specific appointment, he told me, you know, you're going to have to have spine surgery on your back. We're going to put a metal rod in your back to correct uh, the scoliosis. I didn't want it. Right. And so I'm looking over to, to my left. I see my mom, she's crying. My daddy has his head down. That's what he does when he's sad. My doctor's handing her a tissue and I'm sitting there smiling because I am not accepting this news. Right. I will not have the surgery. So I we would go back and forth with my doctor and not really getting anywhere with him. Then eventually I just asked him, I said, let's just say that I was somehow able to reverse the current state of my spine. Could I avoid having to have the surgery then? And then he said, you know, I don't want to give you any false hope. I've never seen this been done before. It's basically medically impossible, but because I know you, I will give you a small if that's if you're able to do it. And so from that day forward, I went to physical therapy. I worked out every single day. I learned how to cook so I can eat healthier. I drive the wheelchair in one hand, carry the pan in the other hand, or I was doing every single thing in my power to, to try and reverse the current state of my spine. I wanted it really bad. Three months later, I go to my doctors, we do the x-ray, my spine is straighter. All I need was a small lift. I did what didn't seem to be uh, really possible at the time. Wow. So just to recap, you decide, go, you decide to go through grueling physical therapy where the odds are against you to fix your spine, to avoid surgery, and, and you're successful. Yeah, that's correct. Wow. What was that experience like? I mean, I, I assume it was the physical therapy must have been a very, very difficult, but it sounds like just talking to you for a few minutes, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you with your mindset and your positive <laughs> attitude. Uh, thank you. Um, well, you know, when I was being stretched out, you know, sometimes it was really painful, uh, you know, but I wanted I wanted to pull this off more than I cared about the temporary pain that I was experiencing. And that was kind of my mindset during this whole thing. You know, I wanted it really bad for two reasons. One, I wanted because I don't want to have a metal rod inserted in my back. I don't want to go through the surgery. But number two, I like when people tell me I can't do something, you know, I can't do this or that. It gives me tons of motivation to do exactly that. And really, that's kind of the story of my life so far is people telling me, oh, you know, you're in a wheelchair or this or that, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, or you're too young to start a nonprofit or blah, blah, blah. And I always do exactly that. And I like to perform and I like to show people that they're wrong about me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, just reading the book, um, it, it speaks volumes about who you are, that motivation. So tell us about the book and, you know, you, you conquer, you overcome this incredible feat. Um, you know, you prove everybody wrong. What made you want to tell your story and write the book? Yeah. So I wanted to write this book. Um, I started writing it when I was 16. I wanted to write it because I want to show people that they can overcome their adversity and that they can develop better mindsets. And I've learned that through all the adversity that I, that I went through. And I really think this book Will this help people become more resilient, more hopeful, inspired, more motivated to, to live a more fulfilling life, to really push themselves towards greatness? Um, these are all the things that I want people to, to get from reading the book. You know, this book is not a book about just a shin. It's a book about overcoming adversity. And 
And that's why I included the life lessons in the book, uh, the 13 life lessons that I think can really, really help people. Curious, what was this process like for you in terms of writing the book? What did you learn from this process? Yeah, so I started writing the book at 16, finishing when I was uh, 17 years old, and then published it when I'm now 20 years old. And the whole process was really interesting because I learned a lot about myself. Um, you know, when you really write your thoughts out, it becomes more clear, right? Just thinking things in your mind and talking about them is just a lot different than how you actually write them out. So I really learned a lot about my life and really seen that all the adversity and really got to um, get clear on, on what I've learned through my adversity. And you know, it was a really interesting process that um, I think that everybody should do. I think everybody should write and journal more and, and get their thoughts to be more clear. Yeah, like what you said, writing something down, an experience you have is very different from talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you just mentioned, you know, you, you really see the differences in front of you tangibly. C-Suite Radio. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Elijah, let's get into some of these life lessons, specifically 13 that you write about in the book. I'm just curious how you how you decided on 13. Were there any that you left out? Um, how did you come up with them? Yeah, so I came up with the 13 life lessons just throughout uh, recapping my life, you know, the major parts of my life and the lessons that I learned through them. And that's really where I got the, the 13 lessons. And, you know, for example, like one of the major lessons in my life was the self-image. When I went into the wheelchair, I had to develop a self-image of seeing myself not as a person that's, you know, disabled or, or a, you know, in a wheelchair, but really see myself as somebody that's smart, confident, and capable of doing things. And when I viewed myself that way, it, it um, led to people viewing me that same way because how you see yourself is how you're going to act and how you act is how other people are going to see you. Another lesson as well that I learned is the adapter's mindset, you know, being willing and being creative to adapt to anything that life throws at you. And I had to learn that by going into the wheelchair and transitioning uh, to a new set of challenges in life. And so that's where the life lessons come from is just reflecting on major parts of my life and then putting those into lessons that I think other people can learn and that they can benefit from. And, and what do you say to people who want to follow these lessons, but they have setbacks, right? And, and they're trying to, to follow the formula, but life gets in the way and you got to take two steps backwards. How did, I'm sure that happened in your uh, journey. So what, what's your advice when that happens and you stumble a bit? Well, I think when we're faced with adversity, I think that every adversity is really just an opportunity to improve your character and to, to be a stronger person. So I don't really think that a setback is necessarily a a negative thing, but more of an opportunity. You know, when you get a setback, you kind of got to take a step back and realize, okay, what is going on here? How can I use this to my advantage? You know, Um, and that's that's what I've learned, you know, when it came to 
doing my uh, reversing the current state of my spine back when I was 16 years old, I had to step back and I had to think about, well, this right here is an opportunity to be to persevere through this and to do something that no one thinks I can do. And by doing it, you know, it's going to prove to myself that there's really nothing that I cannot do in this life if I put my mind towards it. Yeah. I mean, you said it using a setback to your advantage where some people would say, oh, I'm going backwards. You're seeing it as a positive. I'm actually going to get back to where I was and even farther maybe from when that setback happened. I mean, and just talking to you, Elijah, you have such a positive mindset. Um, Obviously the glass is, I would say even more than half full. Um, Where does that come from? Have you always been that way? Are your brothers that way? Um, How do you explain it? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I got to give credit to my parents for sure. My parents have instilled in me this type of mindset from a very early age. You know, they never have let me use the wheelchair or disability or disease as an excuse. You know, you're going to be great, Elijah, and whatever you do, you know, and whatever you choose to do, you're going to be great at it. We expect greatness out of you. You know, I was raised by a head football coach and I'd follow him around when I was like four years old, right? as early as four years old. So I think that had a lot to do with the psychology that I have today. Um, so I have to give a lot of credit to my parents. And then the other thing too is, I just don't see the logic in being, you know, pessimistic. I see the logic in, in being a realist, but I also see the, the logic in being an optimist because optimism leads to, to things, you know, being innovated, to things uh, being accomplished, to hope, which is super, super important, especially during the time that we live in. You know, we the world needs more hope. It needs more inspiration. It needs more optimism, right? We can get through this. We can get through these challenges. So I think it just comes from a, a combination of, of, of those two things. Elijah, one of the lessons that really um, inspired me and really struck a chord with me is when you talk about leadership. I think it was less than 11 um, out of the 13. And going into it, if someone asked me what leadership was, I would think leadership is being a leader to many, right? A leadership to an organization, to a group of people. Um, But right at the top of the chapter, you talk about how it's important to be a leader to someone, just one person. And I thought that was such a unique spin because that's not typically how we, you know, think about leadership. So your message is it's, it's quality, not quantity. Tell us about that lesson. Yeah. So the idea of being a leader to somebody is that you really are going to be a leader to somebody in your life and you should be right. You should find somebody that you can lead. And it doesn't mean that you have to be like the president of the United States or the CEO of a huge company or anything like that. It could just be to one person. For me, for example, I realized this when my little brother Kai was diagnosed with the disease. I realized that I'm going to be a leader specifically just uh, for him in the sense that I have the disease and I got to show him how to overcome this disease and, and show him the path that I went on so that he can go through it as well and overcome all the challenges that come along with having a Deshin. And so really that's where the lesson be a leader to somebody comes from. And I think it's a really powerful thing because uh, being a leader really uh, teaches you a lot about yourself and really improves your character. And I think that's a really important thing as well is, is your character. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you just describe it. You know, it's not this, it's not this insurmountable feat. Oh, I have to, you know, go on a process to become a leader and get there. And it's a journey. You talk about, you know, keeping it simple and the effect you can have, but I also like how you just mentioned how it affects yourself, you know, being a leader, how it changes you, which is so important. Another lesson, Elijah, that struck me was lesson nine, um, dichotomy of control. And you talk about the difference between controlling something versus influencing it. Can you tell us about that dichotomy and is there one that's more important than the other? Yeah. So lesson uh, nine, the economy of control is actually from ancient uh, stoicism. It's a philosophy. And what it says is that we should 
uh, focus on what we can control and disregard what we cannot control. One of the keys here is that a majority of things are not in your control. And when you really uh, learn that and accept that a lot of the stresses of life go away and a lot of your anxiety. So it's a really, really powerful lesson. But now here's a key thing. You have to distinguish between controlling something versus influencing it. For example, controlling would be to determine the outcome, right? So let's say I have somebody that I want to be, uh, to make them my friend. They, I can be very nice to them. I can be very polite, take an interest in them. But at the end of the day, they might not like me because they don't like anybody. And so that's out of my control. So I don't have to worry about the final outcome. But what I can do is influence them, like I said, by being nice and polite and whatever. That's within my control is what I do, right? That's my influence. So that's the difference between the two. And when you really learn that, a lot of, a lot of your problems in life uh, go away. A lot of the mental barriers seem to go away. Yeah, again, it seems like something we all should know and do practice. But when you read it, it's like that light bulb aha moment, like influence versus control. Really um, just very insightful. Elijah, in the book, you also spend time talking about comfort zones and specifically expanding your comfort zone. But you have a unique take on it. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I think that we got to just change the frame of how we look at it. You know, you hear people say a lot that... You need to do things that are not in your comfort zone, get out of your comfort zone, stuff like that. And I agree with them. But I think the way that we should look at it is by expanding your comfort zone. Because when you do things that you're uncomfortable with, you eventually become comfortable with them. So you really, all you're doing is just expanding your comfort zone. And one of the ways I I like to do that on a day-to-day basis is I like to take cold showers, ice cold showers. And I like to visualize things that I'm working on. For example, if I'm going to give a public speech, I'll visualize the whole speech, the stage, the crowd, everything while the cold water is running on me. And that really gets me comfortable uh, with, with, you know, the whole speech and, and, and everything that I'm going to be doing. And so really I'm just expanding my comfort zone. So that's where the lesson uh, that's what the lesson is about. You know, finally, the other lesson I did want to point out again, this one struck me as well. Um, Lesson uh, 10, you talk about practicing gratitude um, because gratitude, when when you're practicing gratitude, you're in a state of peace. How did you discover that? Yeah. So when you think about it, uh, when you, when you're really grateful for something right within that exact moment, you're not really going to be depressed or anxious when you're really just focusing on the things you're grateful for. And, and that's where you get that, you know, that state of peace. And, and the way I discovered it is when I broke my leg, I broke my femur um, when I was in the seventh grade and the paramedics came over and I was in a lot of pain, but when they came over and helped me and stuff like that, I was really genuinely grateful that we have, you know, paramedics that are, are so thoughtful and caring and that can come over. I mean, I couldn't imagine, honestly, what it would have, happened if I, if I did not have the paramedics to be able to come over and the medicines that we have and the doctors that we have and just how things work that made me truly grateful. And really the way that you do this is you contrast, right? You imagine what things would be like if like, if you didn't have them. So for example, a person in your life, you want to be more grateful for them being in your life. Imagine them not being in your life and really visualize it, really experience and think about what it would be like. Don't just, Oh yeah, I'm grateful for them, but really go through the process of, of thinking what it would be like if you did not have that person. You'll be grateful for them. Uh, I mean, just hearing the story about the ambulance, it's just, it's such a mature mindset that you have, you know, kind of seeing, you know, being aware of being grateful for what, you know, it's coming to you in the midst of a horrible injury. Um, you know, we're out of time, but on a final note, you know, there's so many people bullying is such a, a, a hot topic. I don't know if that's the right wording, but it's more prevalent than ever, ever I feel, um, in my personal opinion, bullying on all levels with social media. Um, what is your advice to people? Because clearly, you know, 
you, you've, you've mentioned in the book how you were bullied and you, you spun a negative into a positive. You use that negative, ne- that negativity rather, and turned it into motivation. Can you give everybody, you know, final thought, a few t- tips to do that for those experiencing bullying and how they can flip it around the way you did, Elijah? Well, if someone's bullying you, just don't pay attention to them. Just ignore them. They're not worth your time. That's not in your control. And, and honestly, it's a compliment. That's what I think, at least. When people bully you, it means that you're doing something right. They, they want to try and tear you down. And if they have to pull you down, that means you're already up. So I don't worry about bullies. I actually think of them as a compliment. And, and if they're doubting you, I wouldn't necessarily say that's bullying, but if they're doubting you, that's free motivation. I call it rocket fuel in the book. That's rocket fuel to, um, to do exactly what they say you cannot do. You know, you think that you can do something. They think that you can't prove to yourself that you're right about your capabilities and they're wrong. And I think it's just great motivation. I, I, I personally love when people doubt me and say, I can't do things. So that's what I would say about bullies and doubters and just people that are throwing negative energy your way. Yeah. I've actually always said that myself. If someone is talking negatively about you, I see it as, wow, thank you for there's so much, so many things to talk about. You're taking yeah. your time and your breath to focus on me. Yeah. Wow. Like it's really not necessary, but thank you. I'm honored that you're, you know, kind of exactly what you just said. So Elijah, before we wrap up, um, I just want to say it's been such a joy chatting with you. Um, you're so intelligent, so articulate. You, you really have such a unique insight um, in, into everything you've been through and the way you communicate it in your book is so relatable. So I just want to say thank you and, and, and my hat's off to you. Will there, will there be another book? I hope so, because I'd like to read about more lessons. Yeah, I definitely think there's a few more books in store. You know, I want to help people overcome their adversity and uh, live more fulfilling life. So I definitely think that there's all types of thoughts and things I want to put out in the world. So I definitely think that there'll be more books coming soon. Well, we can't wait. Uh, we look forward to it. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Thank you so much for having me. And if you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website. It's csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.